We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, as usual, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the retweets. Especially thanks for the ratings and reviews. Well, just thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Paul Fairweather, co-host of the Common Creative Podcast, author, architect, artist, and so much more. Paul exemplifies living a multidimensional creative life. He has had a successful career as an award-winning architect. He has been a painter for much of his life, has done stand-up comedy, and hosted TEDx Talks, been a property developer, and now divides his time among co-hosting a podcast on creativity and business, writing books, speaking, and pursuing his art. Paul defies the maxim of of jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Instead, you can create a life of multiple interests through, he cautions, you still have to impose limits, boundaries, and discipline to your craft whatever it is you're doing at the time. Paul's experiences and the lessons he provides are wide-ranging as it reflects on leaving his successful career as an architect behind, discovering almost by accident that he could write, and exploring performance, including what happened when he tried to tell a joke to Robin Williams. Now, let's get better together. Paul Fairweather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So. Well, I appreciate you coming on as a fellow podcast host of The Common Creative. We spoke a little bit about that before we got on and hit record. I actually thought it was a book because it looks so cool. And then you're like, yeah, we're writing a book. So, ah, even better. I kind of, spoiler alert <laughs> to everyone, I guess. not. It's not done yet. But um, 
you know, you're an architect by training. Um, you have a really fascinating story about how you actually started your podcast, which I, I absolutely want to get into. Um, I just love the sort of the origin story of creativity. Cause I think, you know, what you're talking about with this common creative kind of approach, I think is just fascinating. And we're going to talk all, all about that as well. But before we do that, as I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Well, um, part by trial and error and uh, um, a lot by accident and, um, and probably equal measures of, um, of, you know, of failure in that trial and error. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, I, I, I recently, uh, just as a, a long answer to this question, I recently was re- recently given a, a TEDx talk um, called um, about multi-potentialites and um, I'm 62 years old, and I've never ever heard this word. Um, and I, I've had, you know, many uh, varied careers. And for me, um, at times I've been called a polymath or an ASIS man, but they don't sit with me because they sort of seem to um, suggest some sort of genius uh, across all levels. And uh, and I'm basically, you know. I'm good at a lot of things that I do, but not great. Although I do have moments of genius, and so those those terms never sat well with me. So, multi-potentialite is really just you know varied interest in life and creativity. So, um, and that's me. So, in my career, I've been an architect, a property developer. I've been a chair of uh, business. I'm an artist. Uh, I was shortlisted in a, a very prestigious um, uh, Australian Portrait Prize. 20 years ago, and I'm still dining out on it. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm now a speaker around creativity. I run workshops around creativity. Um, I'm writing two books. One is The Common Creative, uh, and the other book that uh, is with my editor at the moment is called Bald, Brave, and a Bit Quirky, um, and it's a creative memoir. And it's really about, awesome. uh, for the listener, that book is about the answer to the question that you asked me, how did I get to where I am? Because you know it has been a lifelong journey, and uh, and it's only as I'm writing the book that I'm getting further and further clarity. So the, the onion unpeels. Um, so what I do now is I have uh, this podcast with my co-host uh, Chris Meredith from Sydney, which I'll talk about in, in a little bit, uh, called the Common Creative, and we started it in a similar way to to your. Uh, vision. It's about opening up the discussion about creativity in business. And that's really what our objective is there. Um, and it's been morphing and changing a bit. Um, I also uh, paint. Uh, I used to paint large oils. Now I do small watercolours. And uh, and I write. And the interesting thing about writing is that I failed English at school. Uh, I've always struggled with writing. And, and I've realised that my whole life I've been a storyteller. I just couldn't really write. And, and I've only discovered writing by accident um, I had a, a friend who did a book about design in Queensland and I and it was all about um, furniture and objects and I haven't done a lot of that so this good friend of mine said look I'd love you to write a piece about it and I went oh god and he said looks like I've got an editor just talk to the editor and work so I sat down with the editor she said look the best thing to do is just write about you know 500,000 words just do it stream of consciousness and yeah. uh, and then we'll then we'll work on it you know we'll have something to work on yeah. So I did that, and two days later, my mate rang me. He said, "Mate, I love your piece," and I'm like, "Cos, what, what, what?" You know, like I feel shivers. What, you know? Because that's no, fantastic. 
And, and so the editor just went, well, that's great, and just flicked it off. And it was just like, and so that was the discovery um, by accident that I could actually be a writer. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that happens to a lot of people, actually. Um, writing sort of seems to be this scary thing, you know, like, oh, I'm going to sit at the blank page cursor. It's going to blink at me. And then I'm going to be like, what do I write? Oh my gosh. Right. And a lot of people I talk to, because, you know, I write a lot, you know, I've got a bunch of books and work, always working on some book or whatever. And just like the way I process the world is I need to write it down. I have to, that, that's how my thought process works. And everyone's always like, gosh, how can you just crank this stuff out? I'm all, I just start doing it, I guess. Because, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things, like, unless you start doing it, you never know. And I think that's really fascinating. Like you've had such a, just a varied career of like being inquisitive, you know, trying things out. And and that's the thing that's interesting about what you talk about, you know, in this book that you're going to, you're going to write called the common creative about, you know, business and creativity. And I always say that uh, entrepreneurs are the creatives of the business world. I think we, really understand the value of creation. And we have a lot more in common with artists than artists seem to think. Mm-hmm. Um, we just realize that we got to sell our art <laughs> as opposed to like, Oh, this is so cool. You know? Um, so I'm curious, you know, coming from the artistic architecture background, what are some of the things that have been for you kind of like those kind of aha moments on this path from artistic to sort of entrepreneurial business because I talk to a lot of people from the like business trying to get to entrepreneurs or technical people trying to get to entrepreneurs but I rarely talk to people that are like I'm an artist and I'm you know going towards entrepreneurship other than authors the authorpreneurs I call them but typically that's just more like a therapy session because like I hate this stuff how come I have to sell it and I'm like sorry half the battle selling it the other half's creating it so uh yes um look i th- i think for for me uh and and as i said before in the process of writing my book you know it's not it's an ongoing unfolding of understanding this um it, it's really about uh you know what feels most authentic mm-hmm. it's it's that's really what it's about and the aha moment for me was um, i had a difficult partnership in my architectural company and we had about 50 people and we were very successful and made money and won awards which was unusual to have both those things in a in an architectural company and um and so uh but we basically we spent our whole lives um defending our positions and um and and it really uh blurred you know my vision about doing what i really wanted to do you know so i ended up staying there much longer than i should have because i you know, I was defending, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't until one day um, my business partner was very open about what he wanted and uh, and I went, oh, well, that, that makes sense. Okay, okay, then that's great. But it was, wasn't until a couple of years later that I realised that I had not been open and because, you know, I could have easily have said years before, look, I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to do different things, you know, and and it's about variety and it's about that thing about multi-potential like that it's okay to, you know, um, I, I had a I had a, a friend who's a who's been a friend since our twenties and he was a musician, and now he's uh, a senior judge 
uh, in the court system. Mm. And he said to me, he said, you know, Paul, it's okay just to be a good architect. <laughs> um, and uh, But for me it's not. You know, I have a, uh, a colleague, uh, Shane Hatton, who's another creative sort of thought leader, and he says, yeah, you know, people say to me, yeah, you know, everyone can connect the dots. And he says, yeah, but I can't help but connect the dots. Um, Interesting. And that's about what this is, you know, it's me, it's my my aha moment was that, you know, it's okay to have, you know, multiple careers. It's okay to be okay at those ones. And, you know, and uh, Chris Meredith and I, my podcast co-host yesterday, we're talking about it saying it's about leaving stuff in your wake, you know. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a woke culture, it's a wake culture. Uh, and, you know, and it's flotsam and jetsam of, you know, of a creative journey and it's okay, you know, for those things to, to bob off or sink or, you know. Uh, I love it. It's not a woke culture, it's a wake culture. That's a, it's a pretty interesting way to put about it with the faultsome and jetsome, you know, things going in and out and just sort of put stuff out there in the world. I mean, a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, they, they always think, well, focus is important, obviously, for lots of things, especially building a business, depending on what it is, but being able to pivot um, and like have what I like to call is a strong convictions loosely held, you know, it's like, Oh, I guess we should go this way because going down off the edge of the cliff, isn't going to work. And I'm just, you know, having so many interests and having so many like talents, is it hard to focus? Is it, is it a, like, how do you manage that? Because I, I, I sometimes, I sometimes think that it's important to have that kind of distribution, but like, is, is, does it get in your way? Talk us through that. Cause it's very fascinating. Look, it, it is. And um, I was had a session with my editor on my book the other day and she was saying to me, you know, what does success look like mm-hmm. for you? Because, you know, the paradigm we live in and the, and the current model we have is, you know, generally, and I know it's, becoming different for you know for the, a younger generation but certainly for my generation it's you know you you were a good architect you know or you're a good accountant and you know and that's what you did and you might have taken up watercolors after you retired uh, a year or two before you dropped dead um and uh and so you know how how do you success and 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 for me and, and that sort of is part of the, the same question um it is it is uh at times difficult, and the reason it's difficult is, um, and I liken it to, I, I liken it to um, those uh, Japanese prayer, prayer drums, you know, mm. where you, you, go, you know, they walk around and they spin them, and mm-hmm. they, you, know, you walk around and you spin them, or someone spinning plates, you know. Mm-hmm. The reality is there is a finite number um, mm. if you get too many, um, and the thing is that momentum is a very powerful force, but inertia is more powerful uh, mm-hmm. because once you're moving it's easy to stay moving but once you stop it's harder to get moving again yeah and so what i've learned is that obviously uh it's you know it is about still having boundaries to say well i can't do all that um that's the first thing the second thing is to try to get uh an overlap of theme so um i'm, I'm writing this book uh, about uh ball brave and a bit quirky and i'm illustrating it so with my own watercolors so you know so there's a there's a common theme 
And, and what I talk about when I speak about creativity is a lot of the stories from my book. So whilst they're different areas of interest, it's still uh, there's an overlapping theme. And the other thing which is important, and it's probably the only sort of parallel with, with the gurus of getting stuff done and focus and the Pomodoro method and all that sort of stuff, because I'm, the, I'm like the antichrist of those things. You know, I, 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 my, tribe, my tribe, you know, the people that I help most are people that, that don't want to do just one thing. You know, they, they, it's it's the anti thing. It's like you know, it's the, the list makers. It's the uh, you know, it's a, so uh, is to not have anything in that area of focus that is too big. That you've got to chop it down into blocks because what happens is it's like that thing of you know, once you look at it, you can't look away, and so. Uh, and it becomes it becomes a, a, a distraction, and you, mm. and it becomes scary. I've got I got how I can't do that, and then mm. I can't do these other things because this has got got so much focus. So the thing is to whatever you have, and you know a, a book is big, um, but chapters are small and pages are smaller. So so it's basically about chunking it down and always having little things that you can do to progress stuff. Um, and then the last point is a as an acceptance and it's a sort of a mindful thing that it's okay to be, you know, a jack of all trades and a master of none. And, and that your success or my success is about a diversity of activities uh, and this variety and curiosity, not excelling in one, um, one area. So they're the, they're the four, four or five um, things that I've learned about, uh, how how not to be a focused person. <laughs> I love the whole chunking aspect. Uh, I used to work at a company where what was really, it was a semiconductor company. And the big thing was like, you had to write these memos, right? And we literally got judged on how many memos we wrote a week, right? I mean, it gets ridiculous at some points, right? And I also worked at a company where they wanted us to do these daily reports, which really not daily, but they wanted you to like make progress every day. And one of the things that I learned from that was there's this idea of a quanta of work. Like this is a quanta of work that could be published or like there's a result or whatever. And and typically depending on what you were working on, you know, the quanta time, it could take you a day to do a quanta or a week. And then they tried to do this to just make it more like, Hey, if you're spending your time on it, you should write about it. But the, the thing thing about the chunking thing was, so of course people could game this, right? Game anything. Um, the, I, the whole trick was if I wanted to get more memos, I needed to chunk it into pieces that I could publish, you know, as quickly as I could, and then have a thread like part one, part two, part three. And I like what, when you brought up the whole idea of like writing a book, writing a book. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's, you know, how many 250, 300 pages. It's a lot, right? But chunking things down into today, I'm going to write a page or this is the chapter or do do you like organize your work? So like, okay, I've got, let's say I've got all these things going. I got 10 things going on. Is it like, okay, the book has to be do these things. Do you do that kind of planning or is it basically like context switching? Like, "Ah, I feel like writing today. Ah, I feel like drawing today. Ah, I feel like. (laughs) Look, I I try to have a schedule. I've got a, I've got a a tick box and it's, it's you know all the things I need to do and some painting and some business development whatever and and, it, and it, I very rarely tick 
all the boxes or, or any of the boxes for that matter. Um, in terms of my writing, I wanted to share how I, how I write because, you know, I, in trying to learn to write, you know, I read so many books and papers by writers about how to write. And, mm-hmm. uh, and what I found was that uh, the only common thread of all those things is that everyone has their own way, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit like, you know, and a lot of the writers say, you know, the best way to learn to write or improve your writing is to do reading. Um, and I'm a, uh, a fairly ferocious reader now, but when I was younger, I wasn't. In fact, I repeated grade two because I couldn't read properly oh, wow. and uh, undiagnosed dyslexic. dyslexic, dyslexic. Anyway, um, basically uh, what I do is, and there's a great book called Rest uh, by someone whose name I can't remember. And in that book, uh, the author talks about all the famous you know, thinkers in history and about mm-hmm. how their days and how rest was part of that. And Darwin, you know, would you know do some work and have lunch and go for a walk and then have a nap and you know, you know, whatever it was. They all had naps and stuff. But she talked about the scientists that talked about their waking process and they, you know, would wake slowly and for half an hour and have a, as the scientists described, a conversation between their conscious and um, subconscious or unconscious and this conversation sort of going from dreaming to thinking and and that was a revelation for me because I went oh my god that's what I do um and you know like I've done stand-up and when I do stand-up that's when I write you know in my head and so what I realized is that it's this thing about channeling so to write the pieces that I write um I do most of my writing in that half hour when I'm waking and then if I can get up and just sit down, it just flows. I don't have to go, have to think about what I'm writing. Um, I read something the other day, someone said about, you know, asked a writer, how do you remember all that? She said, I don't remember anything, I write it. Um, you know, and as you, as you know, and as any author will know, as you start writing, it just starts flowing. You know, you, you sort of got to pull out the pull out the plugs um, of it. So I know I got a bit off track, back track there, um, but... Yes, and I think that's answered the question. Um, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I, I did want to just before, um, you know, you, talk, you talked before about creativity and curiosity, and I have a great um, a story example of one of our podcast hosts, uh, podcast guests, who who will be in the book, and it is the best definition of uh, curiosity and creativity that I've ever come across. So this guy was a serial entrepreneur. He, when he was like 18, he was up the North Coast cutting the roof off cars and turning them into higher um, convertibles, uh, just sedans, you know, wow. illegally and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And and he had, a, he had a chain of restaurants and stuff and one of them burnt down in the park and, and it was a. It became a battle for ten years to get this thing rebuilt. Although it was a public building, um, a, a bat- battle that he lost. Anyway, it took a lot out of him, but you know he, he just kept on going, and he became a real estate agent. He was quite a good real estate agent. And he was at a barbecue one day for his six-year-old a soccer barbecue, a birthday party, and he got cornered by this woman who was a um, a research scientist from the University of Queensland, who was researching cloning coconut palms. Now, you know, I'm a pretty curious guy, but, you know, you know, I reckon I would have been like, you know, oh, boy, is that the time? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, Glenn, Glenn Boyle is his name. He, he stayed speaking to this woman for about an hour and, uh, 
and he found it fascinating. So we went home and he researched. And, and the thing was, and why they're doing this, is that the world population of coconut trees is basically coming to its uh, life end. You know, and all the trees production, you know, they're all basically getting to the end of their lives. Since production is greatly down, um, and there hasn't been any sort of sustainable renewable thing because you know there are a lot of coconut farmers are you know small plots so they've got a certain amount of trees and they can't afford to rip the trees up to put new trees in and so what they're doing is uh you know they're cloning these the best the best the fastest growing the best producing things to help repopulate well but they had no commercial model for it no model and glenn went oh my god this is you know amazing opportunity so now he has a uh, business called Kokonui, uh, and they're literally, you know, they they've raised millions of dollars, and they're doing their first, you know, farm in North Queensland to propagate these coconut palms, you know, to to help replenish the coconut palms of the world. And so, for me, that is the definition of curiosity. That he went, oh wow, that's really interesting, you know, and he took that from what most people would go. Oh, nice to meet you. <laughs> and, you know, every time you see them at the soccer game, oh, that person. Yeah, there's to, a coconut person. <laughs> yeah, you know, I call him Mr. Coconut. To, yeah. To, to, you know, a multi-million dollar business. And so for me, that is, that is just the, 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 the pinnacle of curiosity, you know, that, 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 that one moment um, that um, he goes, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, you, you never know when opportunity will come. You just never know. I think that's the reason why to be open-minded about, you know, even meeting other types of people or being interested. I mean, you mentioned that you now you read a lot. And one of the things, yeah, as, as I was learning to become a writer and all the, my writing buddies and all the books I've learned or read, that's the common theme. Like if you read a lot, then you kind of understand like what good writing is and you just, you read good writing and you're like, oh, so that's what it is. Cause we, you know, we pattern match a lot as people, right? Like we're like, oh, so that's a good pattern. Like I'm going to repeat yeah. that. And um, what, so you mentioned that you've done stand-up. What, what, how'd you get into that? Well, <laughs> so um, for, uh, with another mate, I'm the co-founder of TEDx Brisbane. Mm, okay. We, uh, I, as I, I've been to about well, half a dozen TED conferences in Long Beach, California, and uh, I did a, a little three-minute on stage there, which was um, quite um, uh, uh, confronting. <laughs> uh, I was I was going to use the word terrifying, but confronting well, yeah, terrifying. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I love I love you confronting. That's a, just a very right. subtle, like yeah, it was no big deal. Yeah, it was um, terrifying. Uh, I have a great story about that, but I, I can't oh, remember. I want to hear that too. But I mean, that, person's name. Oh my god. Uh, is American comedian woman uh, very inappropriate says inappropriate things. Uh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman. So she was in the same um, set, set as me. Um, oh really? And, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was really unfortunate. She got um, she got panned uh, because she makes jokes about you know, disabled children and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And and some of the donors have disabled children, and so you know they they objected and. Uh, and 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 Chris, you know, it's a rare thing. Chris, um, you know, he tweeted saying, you know, it was inappropriate, but I thought that was inappropriate because they knew what they were getting. Um, anyway, um, yes, yes, I, I would, I was, um, I was, I came off stage 
and she was in her dressing room. She had a dressing room. We had, we were just sort of out, but you know, we were because we were the half dozen audience segment, you know, that you could pitch for a for a slot. And she was so nice, you know. She just said to me, she said, "Oh, you're great. Oh, you're really great out there." Because she could see that I wasn't that happy with it. Yeah. You know, she's like, "Oh, that." You know, and I so I always have this place in my heart for her because she was just so nice to me. Uh, and then she goes out, and hers was fantastic. But she got panned afterwards, and it was, you know. Like, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's her style. I mean, that's I think the thing is that authentic self. I mean, yeah. you sort of know what you're getting with her and you may or may not find her funny but i mean you invited her you know what she's gonna say you know and it's it's beautiful i actually i'm so glad you brought that up that that, that she was the kind person to you because and and i i generally think you know i mean meeting celebrities and you know even well the even the celebrities of the entrepreneur world and all that sort of thing you know it's this sort of thing where you put these people on this huge pedestal and you're like oh my gosh like I have nothing in common with them. Well, you actually have more in common than you think. And I think as entrepreneurs, when we're interacting with people or as we ascend up the hierarchy or whatever, as we become more and more, to remember the humanity and be compassionate to people. I mean, within reason, you know, clearly if people are being, you know, douchey towards you, obviously, but to see people in their humanity, it's a beautiful thing. Because like, now you're like, I'm always going to remember that. And I, what kind of confidence boost would that be that Sarah Silverman says, oh, you did great. <laughs> Even yeah. if she's lying, you're like, Sarah <laughs> well, Silverman, yeah. talk to me. I'm this, you know, <laughs> what do I know, right? Well, actually, just to follow on from that and sort of back to the comedy thing, um, I was one year at TED, um, there was a, uh, they had a special session, which was uh, ABC, uh, special science session at night. It wasn't a sort of a TED um, session. It was an extra session anyway. And it was about technology and there was this, it was a science show or something and they had a, tech, a technology problem and they're trying to fix it up stage apologising. And someone in the back of the room is heckling, you know, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is pathetic, you know, the T in TED stands for technology, you know, all my money back and stuff. Anyway, um, it turns out it was Robin Williams. <laughs> so uh, he makes his way to the front of the stage and and, and does an impromptu yeah. you know, 15 minute set while they yeah. fix the, the the tech issue. Yeah. Good anyway, so the next year uh, I went along, and you're not supposed to, you know, there's a lot of celebrities, right? You're not supposed to yeah. you know, hassle them. Correct. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, at the time I was quite into cycling. And I read that Robin Williams used to cycle with yeah, um, a lot. Uh, Lance Armstrong before he was disgraced. And so I, uh, and there was a sort of a joke that if you, besides the, the mammal joke, you know, middle-aged man in Lycra, uh, it was also the joke about um, if you'd cycle a lot, you, you suffered from cyclists uh, or you had cyclists. So um, I decided I wanted to tell Robin Williams this joke. And we're on the, the, the outside the theatre one day and, and I saw him standing there by himself and I was there with a mate of mine, another Aussie from Sydney, and we went over to him and go, hey, fellas, how you going? What's up? And I said, oh, you know, Robin, I just, um, I believe you do a lot of uh, cycling. He said, I, I, uh, I suffer from cyclists. And he goes, oh, mate, don't worry about that. He said, I'm a pedal file. <laughs> 
<laughs> my joke, my one-line joke, which I've been practicing for weeks, you know, was blown out of the water. You know, in in, in a well, I mean, I, to be to give you some uh, credit, I mean, it was Robin Williams. I mean, it ain't like no schlock tech. I mean, it was funny. You know, I live in San Francisco, and um, he used to do these impromptu sets at Bim. I think it was Bimbo's. I always forget. Like. But like, hey, working on material and like literally if you were local, you'd go. And I saw him once there local. It was just like the most fascinating thing because the process was so interesting. Like he's crafting it. Like, and again, from an entrepreneurial point of view, it's like your product, you have to craft, like how's the audience going to react? And so he'd say a joke and it would land flat. He'd be like, oh, check off that one off the list, you know, and like he would, cause he was working on this material. And I think that's a great process. I mean, reason why improv and comedy is such a powerful thing for a feedback mechanism is, you know, when you suck at it, because no one laughs, the feedback is like, it's, there's no debate, right? That's the reason why I have such a respect for comedians and people that do improv because it's the feedback's there. Like you can't, kid yourself like as an entrepreneur you're like oh my product's great well no one's buying it well we have a lot of free subscriptions well you know like the the feedback mechanism is for you know did they laugh it's funny if they didn't laugh it's not funny no matter what you think and i just love that and yeah. i love the fact that this idea of when you're creating and again creativity is powerful motivation um in terms of for an entrepreneur is the working on material idea is just gold because every little thing, you know, it's like, what about this? What about that? You know, and what a great story as well as a great lesson, right? Well, you no, know? fantastic. And <laughs> I, I, I had this fantastic Borsellino uh, Italian hat um, and uh, I got a photo with him and he grabbed my hat and put my hat on, which I've unfortunately lost since. But this fantastic photo of he and I and we've got, you know, Grins. My, I've never smiled so much in my life. Yeah. And my jaw, my jaw was sore. <laughs> One of the tricks that I've learned in doing stand up, and you talked before about you know you, you know the list. I ticked that off. Yeah. A lot of community, com- um, a lot of comedians use that as their set. Yeah. Instead of going, oh, what's my next piece? They go, oh, well, that one worked. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they've actually got their list yeah. on there, and they're looking at the list without you know, saying, oh, what's my next thing? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, George Carlin, when he was working on material, would have, I mean, come up, like, with, like, paper and, you know, okay, this is what I'm working on. And, and th- th- there's a there's a craft to that that I think is not respected enough, if, if, that, if, I, if, I can, if I can use that term, because the art, the art of this all, I mean, stand-up in particular is, okay, well, if it gets a laugh, it's funny. If it doesn't get a laugh, it's not funny. And what you may think is funny, no one else may think is funny. And the same corollary is for startup. You may love your product and you may think this is the best thing in the world. If no one buys it, sorry, it's not a good product. Now, that doesn't mean you just may not have figured out the, the, the punchline, you know, to use to use to continue on that analogy. It's so important that this working on material idea. And which, which I love, I just like thought, oh yeah, that's what entrepreneurs are trying to do. How do I work on the material? And the creativity to your point is in that process. Like, how do I figure this out? And it's like a puzzle. And, you know, that means you can't be in love with your technology. 
You can't be in love with your idea. What is the, what are the, what's the audience think? Did they laugh? Did they not laugh? Oh, not going to do that again. How do I tighten the setup? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I've never, I've, there was a point in time where I'm like, I'm going to go do an open mic at one point, like my fiance Minerva wanted to do it. And I'm like, you know, wanted to impress her when we first started dating. I said, well, if you do it, I'll do it, you know, <laughs> but we never, you know, what you do for, for, for love. Right. But we never got to do it, but because then COVID happened, but it, it just seems like what a great way to practice. Look, it is it is a fabulous thing, and I, I got to it uh, by remembering. So when we were co-hosts of TEDx and my mate and I, we did a set set each, uh, you know, a session each, so two a day, and I became the comedic host. And after the first few, we said, "I'm going to introduce you as the funny one," and I get really upset with it. No, don't say that, you know, because I might not be funny because you know I was just there to introduce the next speaker, not to be funny. Right. Uh, and I was funny. It was a bit of improv and a bit of, you know, improved uh, rehearsed material and stuff. And when we gave it up because we decided to do other things and it was part of the part of the wake uh, and the floats and we do something else uh, and um, it's the thing I miss most. And then I remembered that as a child I used to run these skits at every speech night and, you know, I was, I was a little stand-up comedian and, and I went through a thing in, you know, in my puberty where I didn't lose my visual art, but I lost my my, my desire to perform. Um, mm. And it sort of came about while I was in a musical, a school musical, and I painted the set. It was enormous, you know, but with one mate. We took two weeks off school and we painted these two huge sets. And I was also in the chorus. And at the dress rehearsal, it was Pirates of Panzance, and I was a policeman in the dress rehearsal. The woman, like, stop, 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 stop. You, 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 me, you and Blue, you, you, sing a few bars. And she went, oh, my God, you can't sing. So you have to mime. <laughs> so, you know, on the dress rehearsal, a little bit like Sarah oh. uh, Silverman, you know, why, why did you pick that up earlier? Anyway, oh. and so that was, you know, that wasn't the thing. It was, you know, okay, I never got on stage again. But it certainly oh. set something in motion for me. And it wasn't until my 40s and before stand-up came singing and I'm, Pretty well tone deaf, and um, and that look, you know, that that's a whole that that episode will be in my is in my book about yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, coming to singing and performing uh, and how I embarrass myself um, so much. But so I decided, you know, I wanted to do um, comedy, and it took me a long time. And I I found a course, and it started, and, and it was it was it was a long time coming. But it is really uh, an amazing thing. You know, it is an incredible buzz. Um, and I used to do open mics. That's where it's sort of the only chance you really get. Um, well, you're working on material, yeah. But there's some people there, and I think it's just back to to what you're talking about, about iteration and, you know, when, when you've got to give something up. There's some people there that would literally week after week because be the same people week after week, different venue. Same shit. Don't get a laugh. Three minutes, don't get a laugh. And they get up the next time, they do it again, don't get a laugh. Not one laugh. Now, I, you know, I was suicidal if one of my jokes didn't land. <laughs> and I don't know how these people do it. But, but, but you're dead right. You know, what the, what the great comedians are is that they basically, yeah, they take the feedback and they improve it. Um, Obviously, yeah. there's some outliers there, and I'm sure there's some outliers there in comedy. But you know, in in not business, not very many. I I don't think. No, I think- I, I'm thinking of uh, like James Dyson. You know, you know, if you applied that model, well, mate, no one wants it. You know, uh, it's not working. You know, 
yet, you know, so so I think there are some outliers, but generally it's that thing of, um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it's probably part of the answer to your you know, final question that you always ask is that, you know, a great idea doesn't necessarily mean a great business. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. that's the, you know, and, and it's also about writing, you know, it's about murdering your darlings, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, we fall in love with our words. And I, I, I met a guy, uh, I go to the same coffee shop every morning, and the guy that cleans the windows once a week comes in. I got chatting to him, and a really interesting bloke, and I told him I was writing a book. He said, oh, I'm, I'm a writer, and I used to be a songwriter and a musician and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, can I send you something? So he sent me a story. It was a story about travelling across America, and it was, it was 8,000 words, and it could have really been 500. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it was really wordy, and I can yeah. understand. I and I and I yeah. it was fantastic. I said, look, I'm happy to give you feedback because because only because I'm talking to myself, you know, listen to what I'm saying. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. So it's about murdering your darling, which I find very difficult to answer the question yeah. about like how I write and push stuff together. Um, I got to the point where I went, okay, I need an editor. So, and 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 part of my success in my life and when I've been in business is I've always had a a catcher in the rye, you know, yep. so I'm the, I'm the crazy maker and someone's always catching it and running with it. Yep, yep, yep. I, I am a doer and I get things done, uh, but, you know, I'm much better when I've got someone else that picks it up and runs with it. And so I got to a point in my book where, you know, if I, I can do a short story and I can bring two or three ideas and I can weave them and I can tie them all up in a nice bow at the end, but to do that over, you know, 70,000 words is beyond my my brain you know I, I there's too many dots connecting there it's just like and so i've now got a fantastic editor uh an old friend of mine who happens to now live and follows the sun around the around europe and uh and she's she's editing it and she's putting it together now or well, she gives me homework she goes right you know yeah right this piece or yeah we need a new piece here yeah so i go to bed thinking about that piece i get up think about it get up write it send it off to her. she says great yeah oh yeah the the, the um, power of a good editor Yes. I've had so many good ones. Uh, and and I, I like that. I like that the way you brought that up because there are st- starters and finishers, even in, as entrepreneurs, there you get to the point where you're like, the idea is there, but I can't put it over the goal line, or I need a I need an editor, I need someone to refine it, I need someone to process it, I need to make productize it, is what we used to say back in the day where someone would create something, but then someone would have to productize it, which means make money at it. <laughs> You know, I mean, like, well, you know, sometimes you make money out, sometimes you don't, but it's, it's a, I don't know how to put this because a lot of times the whole murder your darlings idea, right. With, with writing is, is a very powerful one that not a lot of entrepreneurs take to heart because, you know, you do an MVP minimum viable product, you think, oh, this is so great. You get some feedback, you know, you're trying to get this thing called product market fit, but it's not really working. And you got to figure out how you're going to make the audience laugh, which is essentially how you're going to make them buy, right? And scale. And if you get sucked into the dogma of this is a great idea, I don't know what other people are thinking. you go down this, you get, you probably start to get depressed. You're, you're the, you know, you're the person that writes 8,000 words when you only needed to write 500. And if for everything we've talked about today, which has been just a wonderful, uh, I don't know, glimpse into how you think in your mindset, 
that single thing I think is the most important to work, you know, working on material is a feedback loop and it doesn't always work and you got to know who you are and you got to really feel, okay, I want to learn. And sometimes you got to pitch it to someone else so they can catch it. (laughs) That's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, That's exactly right. So, you know, Paul, it's just been such a great, great conversation. Like, wow, the time has flown. I can't wait to read your book. Love. I'm going to check the podcast out. I really think it's just a great, great story of how, of, you know, of how, of how the arc happens. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs just, I think need to take that to heart, you know, like we're the creatives of the business world. Sometimes you get a laugh. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> well, we've had plenty today. So yeah, we have. It's been great, you know. And you're, it's it's just great. No, it's wonderful because I think you know. Again, this is a tough job. This isn't like creating something from nothing is not easy. And to have the attitude of improvement, how do I do it? You know, did I make them laugh? Is it landing? You know, metaphorically, solid solid way to think about it. So again, thank you so much. Stay safe. Can't wait for the book to come out and uh, yeah, good luck. Hopefully you get back to stand up. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's, uh, it's been thin on the ground uh, because of COVID, but, uh, um, or it might just be, you know, another bit of floats and jetsam, which is okay. (laughs) Can always come back to it. That's the beauty. Correct. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Paul, for being on the show. Wow, that was a tour de force. (laughs) I guess I don't know what else to say. So, well, actually, anyway, as promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Paul. Paul believes success can be defined as not just being one of the best in one field. You can define success as freedom to pursue multiple interests. He's able to find focus partly by finding a common theme among his different activities. Yeah, well, I mean, the predominant wisdom, of course, in the startup world is to focus, 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 and focus some more. Um, This is an interesting idea. Uh, A lot of times I always think of this as sort of building a skill stack or a talent stack. So if you're trying to do something new, Hopefully, everything you're working on sort of builds up to a a stack of skills. So I would just ask yourself, you know, what's your main objective? How am I going to get down the path? I mean, it may or may not be for you to be good at multiple things, although we all all are good at multiple things. But maybe when you're starting out, you sort of got to play a little bit with it. You know, I mean, Paul's been doing this a long time. So Paul learned as a writer to murder your darlings, a concept that can be Apply to business too. Be willing to let go of words or ideas that aren't working, no matter how attached you might be to them. And of course, all of us in the startup world know this as pivoting. (laughs) So be ready to pivot. Now, you got to figure out when it's the right time to pivot. Of course, how should I pivot? What should I pivot to? But, you know, be open to that. It's sometimes very hard to be like, ah, this thing I'm working on so cool, but you know what? No one wants to buy it. So maybe I should pivot to something else. Get curious. 
Paul shares how one serial entrepreneur struck up a conversation with someone at a party, which inspired him down a road that led to a successful business solving the problem of coconut depletion. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty wacky story. I mean, the Robin Williams story is wacky, too. You definitely got to listen to that, or you already have listened to that. But yeah, I mean, you can find inspiration anywhere. So don't limit yourself to just the folks you're around. You know, get out there. Like, have different... I don't know, interests, you know, it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, I've, I've had this exact same experience where I've been talking to someone about something totally random and then, wow, got an idea about something else. So figure out, you know, get out of the comfort zone, ask yourself, what other things am I interested in? Go off and just be curious and seek, seek knowledge through that. So yeah, I mean, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always going to be interesting. All right, there you have it. The actionable insights that I learned from Paul Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.